Uh, before we begin, I just I do have two announcements that I just remembered. Um, they're actually pretty significant, <laughs> so it's funny that I forgot them. Anyway, uh, I don't mind kids in the service at all, and it doesn't distract me at all, but if you feel like you need to take them out, we actually now have audio in the fellowship hall, um, so you can still hear the sermon, and the kids can as well if they're um, too distracting for you. Not a problem for me, so... Um, but we'll leave that uh, to your discretion. Also, ne- beginning next week, during the Sunday school hour, here in the sanctuary, we're having a new members class that will run for several weeks. So if you're interested in becoming a new member, or if you've been a member for a long time and you'd like to see and experience some of the direction that we hope to go, um, that will happen here at 9.30, and we'll go for four to five weeks. Um, so we're really excited about that, and if you can't attend them all but would like to hear it, my hope is that we'll record those as well uh, for your benefit. So just wanted to extend that to you. So let's pick up back in Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll begin reading in verse 11. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, as weighty as it is, and I pray that in our limited time, with my limited skill and limited understanding, we'd be able to unpack some of the glories that are in this text. And we would leave here astounded at the victory of God in Christ. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this word, and I'm, I'm going to try to talk fast because we've got a lot to cover. This is a very significant idea. It's important for me. It's very meaningful to me, and I hope at the end of this message, it is for you as well. And I'll just go ahead and tell you what it is or what the title or the point I'm trying to get across is, and that is that Jesus Christ is our champion. He is our victor. He has triumphed in a great and significant way. Hopefully by the end we'll be able to stand in amazement at his victory. So first we come to this passage. We're picking it up in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So this word children reintroduces us back into what we looked at last week in that Jesus has become or made himself our older brother. If you remember, we talked at length about this idea of brother or sibling. 
And that Jesus, through His incarnation, through His coming to the earth in the flesh, made us His brothers or His siblings. And in verse 10, we, we spent a lot of time talking about this word. It was fitting. What God is doing, what the Lord is doing, is He's unfolding a story. And this story has themes and trends and ideas and analogies that God is using to communicate to us things about Himself. We are the intended audience, and we're also a part of the cast. He's unfolding this grand story. He's not out of control. He's not responding or reacting. He knows the story he's trying to unfold. And one of this, the major themes of this story is that we are now part of the family of God. And more specifically, Jesus is our older brother. And this is all from that phrase, it is fitting. He always does what is right and good and true. And it's fitting. It makes sense. So Christ has been made our older brother. So we who trust in Christ do not have a far off and unknowable Savior. He became near to us. We have someone we can look to for our salvation. Who invited us by his work into the family of God. And also. The world can seem confusing. I mean, the author has basically granted that uh, in previous verses. At present, we don't yet see all things subjected to him. The world can be confusing and dark and challenging to understand. And your place in this world can be confusing. But this idea of Jesus Christ being our older brother, us being the younger siblings of Jesus, that tells us who we are. That tells us our part to play. And it gives specificity or clarity to what this life is meant to be about. It tells you how to act. You follow your older brother. And I want to spend a little bit of time on clarification on something I said last week. I didn't have time to unpack it all. Um, it's this idea that God doesn't look at this dynamic we have of brother and sister and he doesn't look at this idea we have of bride and bridegroom he doesn't look at this idea of father and son he says and and, and then says oh i'll make sense of who i am or i'll try to communicate who i'm who i am using these things the idea biblically is that the reality of god and what he desires to do in christ is what has existed from eternity past and so marriage, it's indicated by Paul in Ephesians 5, is given to us to help us understand what God wants to do in the church. Brother, the very relationship of brother and sister is given to us so that we would understand what God is doing in Christ for us. Everything you see in the world is God giving us some picture or some, some shadow of the heavenly realities. If you want to read more about this, pick up a copy of Jonathan Edwards' Images of Divine Things. What he does is he looks at all of life, looks at the entire world, and he says, this is what God is saying through this. This is what God is trying to tell us through this. We have the Bible, and we have what we see in the world and all the relationships and the interactions. This is what God is saying. So why am I taking this time to discuss this sidebar? 
There's a danger in talking about spiritual things disconnected from our lives. What can happen is we can think, oh, all this spiritual stuff, you know, Jesus, our older brother, um, him, our savior, and we devote ourselves to Jesus and all this. And then we have real life, your job, you know, your nine to five, your health insurance, your chores, dealing with your older brothers and sisters, kids, right? All the frustrations, the mundane, the cleaning of the house. So we can we can separate the spiritual from the what we would call unspiritual or normal. And since God is using these things or these things are given to us as a shadow to understand the reality, and this is all from this word children, we are in, in a sense as Jesus's younger siblings, God's children, all of life, every experience and interaction and interrelation is to help us understand what God has done and is doing. C.S. Lewis, uh, in, a in a paper he wrote defending Christianity from naturalism, said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Meaning the sun in the sky. Not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. Right? It's not just, you know, I'm looking outside right now through the window and I can't see the sun, but because of the sun, I can see everything else that's out there. If it's overcast, you may not be able to see the disk of the sun, but it's there. Someone asks you to prove that the sun is shining in, in the middle of the day when it's up there. What, what do you do? Do you, do you write out a thesis of why the sun's there? You just point to it. It's there. But also you look to everything else. How else could you see everything? Christianity is the only religion in the world that makes sense of everything. Other religions tell you how to do everything. You can find do's and don'ts everywhere. So in this, in this specific one, we'll narrow it down to children or us being brothers to Jesus, siblings to our older brother Jesus. You can find in every other religion how you should relate to your siblings. They give you commands, the do's and the don'ts. But only Christianity says, yeah, We'll give you do's and don'ts. We'll tell you how you should relate to your brothers and your sisters. But even the idea of brother and sister is rooted in an eternal reality of what God desired to do in Jesus for us. Through the truth of Christianity, we don't just see Jesus. We understand what everything else means. Since that therefore the children share in flesh and blood. With this phrase, this phrase flesh and blood, um, we can, it's important to ask the question, how does the author further shed light on what he said last week? We see in this passage the great extent Jesus went through to make himself accessible or relatable to us as our older brother. Last week we saw, he said it this way, for he who sanctifies and the one, and those who are sanctified have the same source or have one source. So he's talking about the fact that we're, we have our older brother Jesus, we're brothers and sisters because of what Jesus has done. And the reason he gives is because this is rooted in eternity past. God, in a mysterious sense, is the source of both the Son, obviously because Jesus is the Son of God Himself, and He is our source. We went to several passages to see this, but one of the most explicit, and I'll just say it again because it's astounding, John 1, 12-13, but, uh, who, 
But to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And what I said last week is if you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, your source, your origin is ultimately in God in the same way that Jesus Christ is from God. So what is he saying this week? How could you say anything further than that? He says he shares in flesh and blood. So this idea of sameness or solidarity, that he is, he is joined to our humanity, that he's in a sense like us, is very important. And it's taken to the next level. It, it's made more intense in that we see Jesus' actual life. And we, when we look at his life, we see, that how, we see how he was made our older brother. He shares in our flesh and blood. He's not just our older brother in a spiritual sense, which he could have been, right? I've come, you know, I'm, I'm God, I'm your Savior, we have our source in God, you believe in me, that's, that's great, and I'll adopt you into the family. It's further than that. He takes on flesh and blood. He takes on human form so that he could be made like us, according to verse 17, if you keep reading, in every respect. This phrase, flesh and blood, is meant to communicate a very tangible and physical connection that we have with our Savior. The one through whom God created the world, the word before all time, also became flesh, walked among us, and experienced the joys and the pains of our mortal, fragile life. So he could look at you and say, brother, sister. He's not just far off ruling and reigning over the universe. He takes on flesh and blood and calls you brother and calls you sister. And he has experienced the pains and the hardships and the sorrows of this mortal, fragile life. This is echoed when Jesus is raised from the dead and he comes to the disciples and he says, see. See my hands and feet that it is I myself touch me. And see for spirit. Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. This is me. I, I endured this in, in the physical body. I wasn't just a spirit kind of showing you the way and preaching some new law to you. I took on flesh and suffered. See my hands and my feet. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So it's not just that he's our brother in a spiritual sense or in the sense of the eternity past, right? We both have our source in God, we who believe in Jesus and Jesus himself. It's not just that he took on flesh and experienced life among us. He experienced or partook, the idea is willingly, the same things. He could have come, with all of that still being true, and ruled over us 
and he would have been the best ruler ever. He could have come and insisted on us serving him, and it would have been the most fulfilling work we'd ever done. But what did he do? He came in the form of a servant. A poor family, born to a poor family, lived essentially in poverty, especially when he began his earthly ministry. Yet relatives die, and he holds the power of life. He had to clean himself, I've said before. Like the one who is all purity and cleanliness and who controls all matter had to do the things we have to do. He partook of the same things. Not only is Christ your older brother, but in his role as our older brother, he has done something. He hasn't just sit, he doesn't just sit there, he isn't lazy. So those of you in this room who have older brothers or sisters, you might say it's easy to look at your older brother and sister and think, well, they're kind of lazy or they because they're the older brother, they get away with stuff and they don't have to do as much work as I do. They're kind of off the hook, right? But Jesus isn't lazy. He isn't inactive. In saying he partook of the same things, it means that he willingly put on every form of frailty and trial that we have to endure. Even the body that Jesus had wasn't handsome or lovely in appearance. Right? Looks can get you places. A nice stature, a nice build, right? Remember the story of Saul, right? Head and shoulders above everyone else. But the prophet Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should regard him at all. And here we come to the central part of this message. Everything I've said up to this point is kind of recounting and intensifying the things we said last week. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Through death. It's not just that he partook of our frailty. It's not just that he suffered in the sense of going through life and had to deal with dirt and having to eat, being limited and needing to sleep, fighting off sickness maybe. But he took on death. He partook of the same things. If you rewind to go back up to... um, Verse 9, it says, He tasted death for everyone. So the very thing that makes this mortal life negative, and the very thing that makes this experience bound, and the very thing that was promised to be the result of our sin, death itself, Jesus took on death. So Jesus left his position of power and glory in the heavenly places, took on flesh and blood, willingly partook partook of our every frailty of our mortal lives here, and ultimately even drank the cup and tasted death. It's almost as if he, the eternally existent one, 
the one who is the I am, put in front of himself every possible obstacle and intentionally encountered every hindrance. He did himself no favors, even to the point of destruction, the crushing of his body on the cross. But it's not just that he experienced this so that he could look at us and say, my brother, my sister. It's not just so they know what you're going through. That through death he might destroy. This word communicates in no uncertain terms that what he accomplished is a great victory. The enemy has suffered a sound and final defeat. He has become our champion. This goes back to last week where the author says it was fitting to make the founder of their salvation, the way the ESV translates it, perfect through suffering. We talked at length about this word. It can be translated captain or leader, a pioneer of their salvation. And a great word to sum up all of these ideas into one because of this word here, destroy. And what follows is champion. This text that we're talking about puts this word, him being our founder, our leader, our pioneer, our captain, in the context of a conflict. So a way to kind of give a long paraphrase of the idea here. A captain or forerunner who battles for us in a great conflict and triumphs over the enemy. And that's where I get this word, champion. And this is the most basic theme or element of any story. Any good story out there is built on the idea of conflict. Zoe, uh, just a few days ago, said unprompted, Daddy, I want the good guys to win. I don't want the bad guys to win. Sometimes the bad guys do win, but sometimes the good guys win. Children understand this. Every good story that we show our children, read our children, has this concept that there's a good guy, and there's a bad guy, even if it's boiled down to some idea that there's a bad idea and a good idea and the good idea needs to win. We understand this. It resonates with us. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. There's not just some negative idea out there or some force or some black thing that we call evil. There is an individual, a person, an entity. The devil, the adversary, Lucifer. The enemy, through the sins of the human race, has gained the right to wield the power of death over all the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. 
When we sin, when we follow him, as Ephesians 2 says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, when we fall into his allegiance, he gains the right to wield death over us. So we've all willingly sold ourselves into his reign, his dark dominion. The Bible calls people without Christ children of wrath who follow this dark prince. The idea in many places throughout the Bible is that through sin, Adam's cursed race has been imprisoned the dark domain of the enemy. This is conflict on a cosmic level. It's not just our personal sins and the things we struggle with and the habits that we have that are displeasing to God. There is cosmic conflict. Eternity hangs in the balance. And the enemy would have you continue to sell yourself under his rule and reign through sin. That's why he wants you to sin. Because he wields the power of death. And some may struggle with this idea that how can we say the devil has the power of death? I thought God said of himself in Deuteronomy, I kill, I make alive. There is none who can deliver out of my hands, says the Lord. But a way to understand this is to look at the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to remember what happened. Through sin and breaking the covenant that God made with Israel, God gave the king of Babylon, evil as he was, the right and even the commission to go and to take his people into captivity. To bring the curses that he promised would come if they they broke covenant with him. So it's not that the devil is virtuous. It's not that the enemy has earned anything in a good sense. It's that God has appointed him as the one to wield death for those who have broken faith with him. But what if someone who is not guilty of any sin himself submitted to death willingly? And what if that same someone, because he had no sin of his own, took on himself the sins of all who would believe on him? And what if that same someone, because he has an indestructible life and an eternal nature, could of his own will take his life up again? Brothers and sisters, that is what happened. Through his own death, through being undone, he destroyed. He undid the one who had the power of death, the one who has the power to to undo your life. Because he never sinned and he never sold himself to that dark domain, he never gave the enemy the right of death over him. Through willingly taking on death and partaking of the same things, he has now destroyed the one who has the power of death. Jesus Christ is our champion. And my hope is that you would just behold his victory over death today. 
So where does the author get this theme? This champion idea, this, this one who battles on our behalf and succeeds in victory and triumphs and extends the victory to us. One commentary I read indicated that this could be a soft allusion to the Greek myth of Hercules. His audience is Greek, and he himself is Greek. Well, they're, they're Jewish, Greek, kind of Hellenistic Jews is the way, what we would call them. Steeped in Greek culture, Hercules was the greatest hero of Greek culture. And the central story of Hercules in the Iliad is that he goes to Hades and fights death and wins as he rescues the princess Alcestis. In a later version of the story that Euripides wrote, he's pictured, death that is, is pictured as this dark-robed lord of the dead armed with a sword. So in Hebrews, we see Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than the angels. His new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Jesus is the greater Adam. We saw last week and the week before. And Jesus is the greater Hercules. Any hero you could offer and any triumph that you could offer as a pure and awesome victory, Jesus exceeds that all the more. But there's something more ancient than this story of Hercules, where the author may be getting this idea of a champion who fights on our behalf. Something older, something deeper, something grander. And it comes from Exodus. This is the first place we begin to see it. At least explicitly. God says of himself in Exodus 15:3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And before this, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. This divine warrior goes out and fights for his people while we look on. And this theme of the Lord uh, being our warrior, a divine warrior, it's repeated through the prophets in Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against the foe. In Isaiah 49, verses 24 through 26, can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives? That word? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. 
I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. God is a warrior. We have a song that's popular nowadays about this. Jesus himself divines the, uh, applies this imagery of the divine warrior to himself. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. This is from Luke 11. It says, this is when the, uh, if you remember the story, the Pharisees start accusing Jesus, well, you're only casting out demons by the power of the devil himself. And he responds with a lengthy uh, answer. And, and at the end of that answer, this is what he says. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So imagine yourself around in Jesus's day, a reporter asks Jesus to come in for an interview and says, hey, Jesus, uh, could you explain to us what your ministry is about, like what you're doing? Uh, how would you summarize it for us? And Jesus' response would be, well, picture this. There's a rich guy and he's really powerful and he's got armor and a lot of stuff that he's plundered, that he's stolen. So he's really strong. But then another guy comes and he's stronger and he attacks him and he ties him up and then he takes all his stuff. That's what I'm here to do. That's Jesus's ministry. And that is celebrated in this text. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, our champion, has engaged in this conflict with the strong man. And he, the stronger man, has overcome and taken the spoil and delivered those who are subject to lifelong slavery. The implication here is that we are the spoils that the divine warrior takes away from this dark robed Lord of the dead. Our older brother Jesus is our champion, not just in the sense of winning a future or past conflict for us, but being victorious in the conflict over our very souls. He has delivered us through this contest and this victory over the enemy. And even more so, his victory over death is so final, so far reaching, so severe, so violent, so righteous and so pure that the effects of his triumph extend to everyone who trusts in him. Jesus succeeded over death. And that victory is so right and so true and extends from past, present, and future that if you trust in Him, His victory is yours. It is not right that one trusting in Jesus should fall forever under the dominion of the enemy. You are released from that curse. You are released from that dominion through trust in that champion. 
But before we move on to finding ourselves in this text and exploring the depths of how this helps us so much, which we will do for the majority of next week, let's just sit back and marvel at what God has done in the victory of Jesus over Satan's sin and death. This is why I've spent so much time talking about story and speaking of these ideas in story terms, and hero, and villain, and triumph, these themes of brother and sister. Because all good stories have a pinnacle or a final conflict where the enemy is defeated and the hero receives honor. And one of the things I can't stand about our culture today is that we really want to find ourselves in the story. People will say, well, I relate to you know, this person or that person. And this is why Disney has a princess of every ethnicity. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But the whole point of a good story is that you would forget yourself for just a few moments and delight in the beauty of a good story and the joy of victory that you see in how the author unfolds it. When Prince Philip finally defeats Maleficent, when the emperor is finally cast down the shaft and is destroyed, when the ring is cast into Mount Doom and undone, for those brief moments where victory happens and you're not in the story, do you get to rejoice? Is there any part of you that says, yes, it's done? And that's how I want you to feel this morning about Jesus, our victor, our champion, our hero. Before you look to Jesus in terms of what he can give you and how he can make your life better, do you look at his triumph and his victory and simply say yes and amen? Is this your heart towards Christ? Does that deep yes of the soul resonate in you before you try to answer the question, what's in it for me? This is a barometer of your heart and the quality of your love towards Him. This is how the Scripture and different hymns have celebrated this idea. The psalmist says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. When we perceive His victory, when we see how grand and great it is, does it make you want to glorify Him? Without thinking about yourself for just a moment. Crown Him with many crowns. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. May the Lamb that was slain receive the full reward of His suffering. So just a few questions and application to try and really make the rubber hit the road here for you. Do you love Jesus because of what He offers you? The right reason to love Jesus is that the whole point of his saving us is to show us himself. You must love him 
for Him. You can have all this world. You can have all the blessings. You can have heaven itself. But give me Jesus. He is the great victor. He is the treasure. I want Him. I want to be with Him. I don't care how everything else is going. His story is beautiful. I want to be in His presence. And that's it. Second question, do you want to go to heaven simply because it's apparently really great and it's not hell? The right reason to want to go to heaven is because you want to join in the congregation of those who worship him forever. How can I glorify Jesus more? Well, the what you would do is you would gladly go to heaven and, and worship him forever. Then that is where I must go. Even if I must tear down the gates, I will go there and I will worship him because he has achieved a great victory. And this is so astounding and amazing that that lamb that was slain deserves to receive worship and glory forever. This is the motivator for missions. This is the motivator for teaching and admonishing your children in the way of the Lord because Jesus deserves their worship. And we should feel frustrated, even angry, according to Paul, when they come and worship him and they call him Zeus or call Barnabas Zeus and him Hermes. Frustrated, angry that Jesus isn't receiving the glory in that moment. If you find this morning that that is you, that you have loved Christ or sought salvation or looked forward to heaven for selfish reasons, then rejoice that the Lord has shown this to you. And it has been my whole aim this morning to exalt the glory of Jesus, our champion, in and of himself. And if that is you, here is a simple prayer that you can pray together with me. If that is you. So as we close, I'm going to pray this for myself and for you. We'll have a time of response if you need to talk to someone, if you just need to pray and confess that you've been seeking the benefits or the hand of God without seeking his face. May today be the day of salvation. May the day, today be the day that you turn from selfish motives and look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, thank you for showing me the glory of Jesus. Please forgive me for my weak and self-centered love of him. Please forgive me for wanting heaven for selfish reasons. Please ignite my heart with the true love of Jesus for his own sake. Help me live my life to know him more. Change my heart so that I want to bring him the full reward that he deserves for his sacrifice and victory. Help me by your spirit to never lose sight of the glory of Jesus. It is in his name I pray. Amen.